San Francisco International Arts Festival is proud to present the legendary Cuban ensemble Los Muñequitos de Matanzas, Tambor de Fuego. Hailed as the reigning regents of rumba by the San Francisco Chronicle, Los Muñequitos de Matanzas are amongst the highest regarded percussionists in the world. The group currently spans three generations of an extended family keeping alive 500 years of drumming, chanting, and dance. Direct from Cuba, one night only, Monday, April 4th, 7 p.m. at Mission High School in San Francisco. For more information, please call 415-399-9554 or visit www.sfiaf.org. Tickets also available at Julio's Record Store in San Francisco. This is a KPFA-sponsored event and is wheelchair accessible. And you are listening to 94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. It's a minute past 3 p.m. and up next is Cover to Cover Open Book. Welcome to Open Book on Cover to Cover. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Kenneth Bowser, a documentary filmmaker. Earlier films include Preston Sturgis, The Rise and Fall of an American Dreamer, Frank Capra's American Dream, writer, producer, and director of TV show Live from New York, The First Five Years of Saturday Night. Uh, next up, Peter Biskin's Down and Dirty Pictures is going to be a documentary. There's already been a documentary on uh, Peter Biskin's earlier work, Easy Rider, Raging Bulls. Kenneth Bowser, early on in his career, actually did direct a fiction film titled In a Shallow Grave. Kenneth Bowser, what brought you to Phil Oaks? I was a great fan of his when he was alive, and I saw him perform, and I owned all his records, and I just loved his work. He affected my worldview, I'm sure. And so as the years went by and I got in a position where I was um, I was making films and making films about, to some degree, the cultural life of our country, Phil was always at the top of my list of someone I wanted to make a film about. And in the last uh, five or six years, basically, I became successful enough directing the history of Saturday Night Live. I started shooting. At that point, did you have financing no, for it? No, no, nothing. no. No, in fact, I started 20 years ago on the film. I, I approached the Oaks family 20 years ago. I had made Preston Sturges, I think, at that time, at one documentary. And, you know, I, I was getting my career going, and I approached them. I told them what I wanted to do, and they liked me. I liked them. But basically, everyone said, well, what do you want to make a film about a dead folk singer for? Well, that's kind of strange, because this is what biography is all about. Yeah, but he's especially, as I've found to some degree, he's written out of history, Phil. Is he really? It's it's interesting. We were talking before we went on the air that when I mentioned on Facebook and elsewhere that I'd be talking with you, everybody's going, Phil Oaks, he's my favorite. Isn't that fascinating? I mean, as I said to you earlier, uh, I'm amazed by the reaction uh, to the film. I'm so thrilled and delighted to have anything to do with getting Phil, as Megan, Phil's daughter, and I often joke um, getting Phil back out on tour. Phil Oaks himself, my knowledge of Phil Oaks was that he was one of the great 
political folk singers of the early and mid-60s and those of us who were of the Vietnam generation, Phil Oaks ran a close second at times, and sometimes not even a close second, to Bob Dylan, whereas Dylan's career probably had a similar trajectory on some levels. He began to fade out a little bit in the early 70s. He managed to stay on the stage, whereas Phil Oaks disappeared, and this was before he died. There's all kinds of theories. Ultimately, mental illness unraveled him more than anything. The alcoholism didn't hurt. But someone wrote in one of the reviews I was reading earlier, which is probably the most succinct way to put it, that mystery always trumps commitment in terms of artistry. Dylan's work is mysterious, and Phil's was committed. I think people were more interested in kind of a, a more hidden agenda. You went in knowing the songs, mm -hmm. knowing songs like There But For Fortune, Love Me, I'm a Liberal, I Ain't a Marching Anymore, The War Is Over, Changes, Draft Dodger Rag, Power and Glory, and Outside of a Small Circle of Friends. These are the biggest most popular songs that Absolutely. he wrote and mm -hmm. for people of a younger generation they may not have heard of any of them but if you're of a certain generation or even a little younger you have we all walk in with our own impressions so how did your impression of oaks change by doing the documentary you think i think i hadn't realized how biographical autobiographical his material was especially the second half of the career the first half of the career is perhaps biographical about America and what's going on at the time and what's going on in the 60s. The second half of the career from roughly 68, the Chicago Convention on, is much more interior work, much more about what's going on with Phil Oaks. And that, in so many ways, which I hope the film does, also reflected the time, didn't it? Because uh, people were there and interested in what was going on outside, perhaps till near the end of the 60s. And as we moved into the 70s, people became much more interested in themselves. I suspect that someone like Phil Oaks, as opposed to Dylan, I think would have had a better chance of being a major player later on in his life simply because when the mystery is gone or you run out of mysteries what's left is solid reality yeah unfortunately as i said he he was a, a serious manic depressive and, and without tipping the story here uh, he ultimately took his own life kenneth bowser you decided you would do it you went twenty years ago and what did they say to you then and why did their minds change about doing the the piece? oh their their minds never changed what happened was i basically i couldn't get it off the ground uh... no one was interested as you say there are people from our generation who who remember phil very fondly and he was a very powerful influence for some people but for the rest of the world they'd never heard of him and oh well, he's some guy who committed suicide and i never he didn't have any hit songs so why should I possibly be interested in him? And you also mentioned him being second to Dylan. What's interesting about that is, yeah, I would agree. He was second to Dylan and, and sometimes uh, even with him. But what does that mean? Because we don't say about Bob Dylan that he's a rock and roll star or he's a folk artist or he's a protest singer or he's a pop singer. The fact is, Dylan's managed to do all of those things. He also has worked about 35, 40 years longer than Phil, so that helps. But Phil was unique. He was a unique artist. And you asked me what surprised me most. I think that the depth of his work and the artistry, he had moved me very much as a young man, and he moved me in a completely different way as an older man. 
When you're looking at the later albums, the ones that kind of trashed his career, starting with Pleasures of the Harbor and War is Over, when you look at those, or even Greatest Hits, which is about the point where I turned off, mm-hmm. when you look at those now, do you see a greater depth of expression in those than you would have otherwise thought? Well, you know, again, it, it's the difference between being a biographer and being a, an autobiographer, perhaps. Places of the Harbor, strangely enough, is his most successful album. It sold the most copies. It was the first record he did for A&M and kind of marked his changeover from being a singer with a with a guitar in his hand to these symphonic works and later kind of country western stuff that he did. Yeah, I think... When he stopped writing about what was, to some degree, what was going on out in the world, I, I should correct that. He he did Pleasures and then Tape from California, which was when he was starting to lose the thread. He has said himself in, in interviews that he was just burning out. He was just exhausted. On the political front, had just exhausted him. And he started to turn inward and start exploring other things. And in that way his work broadened i'm not sure it deepened in some ways it did i he, you know he'd been writing music for a decade and any artists hopefully they get better at what they do and their craft gets better and i think all of those things improved but his his point of view widened certainly so maybe taking a second look at something like rehearsals for retirement would definitely be in order personally rehearsals is my favorite phil oaks album now it wasn't by a stretch when i started it's a very dark album People ask me, well, how'd you decide to write it the way you wrote it? And I didn't. I just kind of followed Phil's songs. They're more than the soundtrack. They're the, you know, practically the written words of the film. Because he charted not only his country's rise, but his rise. And he charted his fall and his pursuit of fame. His work gets more complex. Kenneth Bowser, working on a film like Phil Oaks' There But For Fortune, okay, you finally decide this is the time you have the money to sit back and live off the money while you work on this documentary. Mm-hmm. Who did you approach first? Did you approach Jim Glover uh, because that was his roommate? Did you approach the family? Which interviews did you do first? The first interview I did was with Michael Oakes because he was there from the beginning to the end. He was involved with his career. He was pretty much there for most of Phil's life. There were periods that he wasn't, and he was very clear, no, this is, you know, I step out from 62 to 64 or 5, whatever the year. And then he would tell me, and Arthur Garson took over his career, or he was working with Jim, or he moved in with Jim, and I was on the way. So he knew where everyone was, who was still alive, who wasn't, so on and so forth. He, he was able to point me in the right direction all the way down the line. Michael was kind of able to give me the foundation, and from there I was able to step out. Obviously, the person missing, the elephant in the room. Absolutely. (laughs) Bob Dylan, you approached them and nothing. Of course, we actually heard back from someone close to uh, Mr. Dylan, and I have two answers to that. One was what I heard back, which was, I'm damned if I do, and I'm damned if I don't. I think he felt he was in a no-win situation. And to be fair to him, more than fair to him, 
you know, if you've ever heard him interviewed, that is not his his strong suit. The uh, Scorsese film, he wasn't interviewed by Scorsese. He was interviewed by his longtime partner manager, who had been his friend and colleague for whatever it was, 15, 20 years. And he wouldn't take no for an answer, you know. And, and he made, uh, as best I understand the story, made Dylan speak up. I don't think, you know, when he's been on 60 Minutes or the other things, he's practically monosyllabic. He immediately said, if there's anything in Ronaldo and Clara you need, so on and so forth. Because Phil was originally perhaps instigated the Rolling Thunder review. And Dylan and the people involved were correct not to take him out with him because Phil was too destroyed by that point. Some of the people you've interviewed, certain individuals, such as Dave Van Ronk, are long gone. That's right. But some others... It looks like you did, certainly P.D. Yarrow and Judy Hensky and Jim Glover. Baez Glover. A man named Michael Korolenko, who's up in, um, I, I believe, Portland, did a film many years ago, seventy, a couple of years after Phil died, within a year or two after he died, kind of a narrative, mostly narrative, with an actor portraying Phil. And he interviewed Dave Von Ronk. He interviewed Abby Hoffman, and he interviewed Jerry Rubin, and he was very kind enough to let me take a couple of moments from his interviews to use in the film. Because, as you said, those people have passed, and I have to tell you that in the seven years I've been shooting, three or four people who are in the film are, are gone. Alice, uh, Phil's uh, widow, uh, just died about two months ago, three months ago now, I guess. Sam Hood, Gene from Jim and Gene, died uh, about a year and a half, two years ago. Two names that seem to me to have little to do with Phil Oaks, except in a maybe broader sense, would have been Sean Penn and Christopher Hitchens. Yeah. Sean's been trying to make a film about Phil for 15 years, maybe 20. He wanted to play Phil. And there's some resemblance, a physical resemblance. And his position is that he became an actor and a director because of Phil Oaks. There's a longer story about that that'll hopefully be on the DVD. I'll put it in there. But he's a lifelong uh, Phil Oaks fan and knows all of his work. And I think he would say that some of his political commitment comes from, from listening to Phil's words and music. And Christopher Hitchens also, like you, uh, in college at, I believe it was Oxford, was it Oxford or Cambridge? I forget. I've read his autobiography. I can't remember. Became uh, also very much a Phil Oaks fan. And as he says, another thing that's not in the film, but he, he refers to Phil as a 68er. It's a French phrase, you know. And he, he loved Phil's work. And, you know, some people have taken me to task that Christopher Hitchens is in the film. Well, you know, he, he supported uh, going into Iraq. And, you know, to that I say, you know, Phil loved another point of view and he loved complexity. He loved John Wayne. You know, he found no problems and contradictions in himself. So I certainly wasn't going to. Kenneth Bowser, you had these interviews and you had other information. The format of the movie, it does not have a narration. What we have instead are the voices of the individuals. And to, I guess, cover circumstance, we have almost like a pasteboard of both newspapers and photos. 
What prompted you to use that process, and is that the similar one you used for earlier films? And I, I would I would add one uh, thing, which is the the voice that ties it all together is Phil's. Obviously, the songs, but also his voice. For some bizarre reason, there's hundreds of hours of of radio interviews of Phil out there, if you know where to find them, and we did. So I was able to have him stitch together not only television interviews he did, but a lot of radio interviews that he did. I've done uh, docs both ways. I've written narration. Sidney Pollack did one. I can't remember everyone who's done narration for various films I've done. And then there's times that I don't wish the overview. I'd rather be inside of it. You know, you commented about Facebook. You put his name up there and all of these people bounce back at you. Phil had a way of, and Hitchens talks about it, of kind of getting inside. You know, he grabbed people. It's very personal to them, Phil Oaks. And there's an aspect, I think, when I've shown the film around the country, and I've now shown it to thousands of people, that um, it's a kind of, uh, how do I put it? It's watching the failure of their youth, their aspirations, what they hoped, you know, the, that we all feel when we're, you know, 17, 20 years old. Yes. But it was the first generation that really felt we've got a handle on this. We're going to make social justice work. We're going to change the world. And it was crushingly disappointing to most of us that, in fact, youth doesn't win the day. And I think for many people, Phil is, if not their childhood, their young adult years. And he resonates in a very powerful way for that reason. You're listening to an interview with Kenneth Bowser, who's the producer-director of a documentary titled Phil Oaks, There But For Fortune. Who is Harold Nimer and what is his relationship to this film? Michael Oakes was selling his archives, which is the largest music photo archive in the world. One of the people who kind of passed over looking at it was a guy named Michael Cole, who co-founded Live Nation and produced the Pete Seeger film. <laughs> and is also one of the producers now of Spider-Man. He's the main producer <laughs> of Spider-Man. And not only that, Michael Oakes is, what he always says is, is Michael Cole like superheroes, Phil Oakes and Spider-Man. Man. He's been the promoter of the Rolling Stones and U2 for years. So he called Michael and I and he said, listen, I hear you, you're trying to make a film about Phil Oaks. And we said, yeah, we, we've been shooting for, you know, four or five years now. And he said, well, what do you need? And I said, well, I need the money to pay for all these rights, which are exorbitant and enormous. And he said, well, I'm in. I'll pay for it. I was kind of taken aback. And I said, you know, this is not the Rolling Stones. You're not going to get your money out. He said, you know. Phil came and played, he had a little coffee shop in Toronto, and Phil was one of the first artists to come and perform for him, and he kind of fell in love with his music and the guy, and he said, you know, I made my money, I want to pay for the film. That's how the film got made. Nimer was his lawyer. Kenneth Bowser, let's do a quick summary of, of Phil Oakes' career. He grew up and wound up going to Ohio State, went to a military academy, studied journalism. In 1962, dropped out of school came to New York, got married within a year, and began playing in the village. Is that about right? Yeah, I think it was maybe late 61. He won a guitar on a bet with uh, Jim Glover that John Kennedy would beat Richard Nixon. That's when he picks up a guitar and combines that journalism background and, and his love of music because he was played clarinet in high school. If that's not the start to the 60s, I don't know what was. Someone said at a screening the other day, he's the Zelig of the 1960s. And I think that's true, not only all over America, but all over the world. He's in South America. He's in South Africa. He's in, in the Far East. You know, he, he got around, Phil. 
his rise was actually very, very fast. He comes in late, as you say, late 61. Within a year, he's got a record contract. Within four years, he sells out Carnegie Hall. But by the time that had happened, he'd already had a couple of albums. And a lot of people were listening to those albums. You know, songs like I Ain't Marching Anymore or uh, There But For Fortune. Yeah. Yeah, and John Baez had had, she had his one hit. John Baez performed the song, and 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 it was top ten hit in England, and it did very well here. And it's been recorded by, you know, fifty or sixty people, I think. Changes, I think, has been almost a hundred people have recorded that song. Is the reason that you called it there, but for fortune, because of the popularity of the song? Uh, no, it's what happened to Phil. It's what happens to all of us. I think it was a better metaphor than I could come up with. He becomes very political, which kind of sets him apart from Dylan. He carried around a notebook of newspaper clippings, and he worked off those? Yeah, he, he read the paper every day, all the papers, and he would just, as he said, you know, you just pick up a paper there, was, and especially in the 60s, there, were, there was a lot going on in the country. Someone said to me, and I think this is true, to some degree in the music industry, the very early 60s and into the late 60s is the renaissance. And, and I often compare, you know, the whole Dylan Oaks thing is in my my glib references, uh, you know, imagine being Marlowe in the time of Shakespeare. And I think that's probably, in some ways, an accurate side-by-side -side comparison. The 60s were a renaissance in so many ways, and they were a renaissance for music. Something happened that probably won't happen again for various reasons. Uh, the way the electronic network had closed, the way we were able to communicate. I mean, we were all stunned. There were guys with Liverpool, Liverpoolin, however you say that, accents talking to us. You know, it was now no one, you know, you got a French accent or you're from England. It doesn't impress anyone. Then in 67, he decides to move to California and things change. And, and I keep thinking that for a lot of people, 67 was the height of the changes in what was going on. But when I talked to folks who were involved, say, with the electric Kool-Aid acid test crowd, by then it was all over. The death of the hippie in San Francisco, 67, the summer of 67, as my memory serves, I was here, I should remember, but like most people who are in the 60s, I don't remember much. But what happened as Vietnam went on and on and on, and then Phil and a number of others rallied around either McCarthy or, or Robert Kennedy, and, you know, you have that a series of assassination, Martin Luther King and Kennedy, and then Chicago, where, you know, we all get to watch on television as, as the uh, Chicago police kind of went nuts. We'd never seen that. And then you follow that up with, uh, you know, Kent State. That's the cherry on the cake, man. You know, nowhere to go from there. I was actually surprised. I had no idea of the amount of involvement Phil Oaks had in the Chicago situation and with the Yippies. I mean, he could have been one of the Chicago Eight, it sounds like. He testified at the trial. <laughs> it was a back and forth. Yeah, he, he, he co-founded the Yippies. He was very much a, a founder of the Yippies, and he uh, helped select Pegasus uh, for president. And he was on the street. He, he and, and Ed Sanders, the Fugs, were the only people who, the only musicians who did show up. I think the MC5 were there, which later leads to another aspect of Phil, which is being at the Sinclair concert. John Sinclair, uh, what was it, uh, 10 for 2, or I forget how many years they gave him for two joints, but he was there with John Lennon, who was a friend of his. They hung out together, and, um, you know, you can't say that Lennon took the wars over from uh, Phil, though he had written a song, because Phil took 
adapted from Allen Ginsberg, who uh, suggested the title to him. So, yeah. And another element that I didn't know until now was his relationship with Victor Hara in Chile. Victor Hara was a major player, major performer, and he was just murdered among others. Phil took off after the Chicago convention. He was he was really depressed. He was drinking too much, and he said to his brother, "You know, I, I've had enough of this." It, he basically it was like a, a torn love affair between Phil Oaks and America. And he said, "I'm going to see the world." And he went out on the road. And one of the places he went out on the road to was Chile. He went down there. He met Victor Hara, who was not only this usually popular political folk singer he had a television show i mean that's that's how far he'd kind of gotten into the the popular culture of chile and then uh, pinochet um and the junta fell upon allende and the democratically elected socialist regime murdered allende murdered victor hara brutally which pete seeger talks about in the film you know it, that was what kept happening to phil oaks and when i said the zelig of the 60s that's what i kind of meant he kept okay america is not getting it together but there's someplace else that and then he goes there and he watches people he knows personal friends be butchered that takes a toll after a while and in 73 he was in africa began using african rhythms in his songs but he got mugged was it actually true that he lost the upper registers yeah he, it was both by the mugging and then he had to perform he believe it or not he was fairly successful in south africa and he went to a, a number of concerts and he kept drinking iced beer because his throat was damaged and the doctor said you can't sing you have to stop he wouldn't and so he, yeah he damaged the upper register is it possible that his voice would have come back it's hard to say in the end because the last images of him he was kind of mentally gone and you know kind of a drunk he oh he was more than a drunk he was completely raving out of his mind in fact phil oaks was dead john train killed him and i'm john train that was his he'd become another person he was totally out of his mind and you know i i think michael feels it was only for about a six-month period but it was a year or two decline Kenneth Bowser, if there were a director's cut of all that you wanted, how much more material would there have been? You know, I really honestly could have made two other films and not used any of the same material. Easily gone to any number of other songs which would have illustrated kind of side views of similar incidents. I could have made a film about chasing fame in America. There's so many films I could have made out of films. His life is so rich. He's such an interesting character. What I knew 20 years ago was that he was a perfect reflection of his time. What I didn't know and what has become so frightening is how prescient it was and how much of his work you can play it now it hasn't aged at all you know he sings about the cops of the world you know one of the reasons i think he's fallen out of favor or fell out of favor and little written out of history is that he regularly bit the hand that fed him from love me i'm a liberal to outside of a small circle of friends he was very happy to call the left on what he felt was their lack of standing up for the right things uh, his disappointment in them came out in a very biting satirical way when listening to cops of the world or love me i'm a liberal you change a couple of the names and the world is the same yeah eddie vetter uh has been doing uh here's to the state of richard dexon or as phil originally recorded it here's to the state of mississippi 
Eddie did it as here's the state of uh, George Bush. You know, I mean, you can take a lot of Phil's music and some of it you don't even have to change the words, unfortunately. Well, I, I know that, uh, and it's in the film, that the Dead Kennedys did use Phil's stuff. Are we seeing a revival of some of the material now among newer performers? Oh, yeah. Jeff Tweedy and Wilco has been doing some of his stuff. As I said, Eddie Vedder from Pearl Jam has been doing stuff. Anna DeFranco's recorded his stuff. Um, they might be giants. He's kind of this secret pleasure of a lot of people. Maybe he's a cult item, but he's more than that. He's, he's a secret pleasure people are discover. Kenneth Bowser, in looking at documentaries that you would say more than any other, you wish you had done, what would you come up with? I wish I'd done Inside Job. It's a beautiful film. Berkeley in the 60s is a wonderful film. You know, one of the things about the Phil Oaks film was a number of people had made films about the 60s and the 70s. You know, from the happy ones of, of Woodstock to the, you know, the darker ones, Berkeley in the 60s amongst others. But no one had ever done a film about one person being that time. You know, as a filmmaker, I mean, I loved Phil's work. I got to meet him once and, you know, just shake his hand. But, you know, it was thrilling to me. I was such a fan of his work. But first and foremost, I always saw it was a great story. You know, it was a unique, singular story about how you could see the time and you could see the compassion and the passion and the craziness and the self-involvement and the, and the pursuit of glory, all of the good and the bad that the 60s were in one man's life. And that's, that's why I went after making the film. Kenneth Bowser, this movie opened on March 18th. We opened in New York about January 5th, and originally the distributor hoped to get it in 15 to 20 cities, and now it'll probably open in 100 cities across North America. You've been listening to an interview with Kenneth Bowser, the director and producer of a film titled Phil Oaks, There But For Fortune. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. For more information about this show, go to bookwaves.com, where you'll also find an extended version of this interview. Poetry. Music. Fiction. Visual arts. Film. Radio 2050. The Collision of Latino Politics and Art in Northern California. Radio 2050, the anticipated year when the majority turns, la gente moving together toward tomorrow.